That's called the Inferno. And then the second part is an exploration up the mountain of purgatory. And then the third part is uh, a vision of heaven. So uh, Dante was a Roman Catholic, and uh, so we do, not, we do not believe that the Bible teaches the doctrine of purgatory, but uh, Roman Catholics do believe in the, the, the idea of purgatory. But uh, for the sake of this illustration, I just want to focus on that first part, the part that is called the inferno, or it could be called hell. And uh, in spite of the fact that in the Divine Comedy there are a number of things that we would disagree with, it still can be a very insight, spiritually insightful uh, journey. And uh, if, you, if you decide as a result of hearing this sermon that you want to read it, I strongly recommend that you get one that is heavily annotated. I attempted to read it without annotation when I was about 22 or 23, and after five or ten pages gave it up as hopeless. It is fairly hopeless unless you have uh, something that is well annotated, and since many people have told me that they take book recommendations that I give, let me add this. I recommend that you get the translation that was done by Dorothy Sayers, and uh, her notes are very helpful. So if you decide to read the Divine Comedy, take that recommendation. Now, the reason that I have brought it up at all is because in the course of uh, teaching through uh, the first book of the Divine Comedy, I would sometimes ask my classes, uh, do you think that the fear of judgment is a, le- a legitimate motivation for uh, seeking to become a Christian? So in the, in the Inferno, there are all of these imaginative descriptions of punishment, and they are punishments that are appropriate to the sinner who is being punished. So the hell, as it is conceived by Dante, is something like a funnel, and along the funnel there are various levels of punishment. And uh, the, the more socially destructive a sin is, the lower it appears in the funnel. And until you finally get down to the very, the very lowest tip of hell, and there you have Satan who is feeding on three people. And it's just going to be a distraction if I go into much more detail. So the question that I would ask is, is, is the, uh, the fear of punishment a legitimate motivation for running to Jesus Christ for salvation. And I was surprised through the years at how many students would say, no, it is not a legitimate motivation. And usually they would come around after I would uh, go through the following exercise. I would say, I would like for us to go through the, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so everybody get out your Bible, I would say, and... Uh, then if, if there were 28 people in the class, then I would assign each person to read one chapter from the book of Matthew, not aloud, but silently. And I said, but when you come, <clears throat> when you come to a reference to hell or judgment or suffering in the afterlife, you tell me and I'll write it down on the board. <clears throat> 
And uh, so I did this, I've done this several times, so I know that there are more references in the book of Matthew, which is the gospel, gospel of Matthew. There are more references in the gospel of Matthew to hell and suffering and judgment in the afterlife than there are chapters. So there are 28 chapters. There are more than 28 references to hell and judgment in the afterlife. And, And Jesus, I dare say, talks more about judgment than does any other biblical figure. And so then those students who at first said, no, it's not a legitimate motivation, were willing to agree with it is a legitimate motivation. It may not be good if it is the only motivation. In fact, the scriptures would teach us that if it is the only motivation, it is not a sufficient motivation. Because uh, you will never run to God if you think of him only as a God of wrath. You must have some idea that he is a God of mercy. Hebrews chapter 11 says, those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so we do well to to emphasize the, uh, the gracious attributes of God such as we do when we sing Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that is where the song ends. So I'm the one who set that song to music. I deliberately did not uh, set what comes next. But what comes next is important. And what comes next after that description that God gives of himself is who will by no means clear the guilty and who visits the iniquity of the fathers under the third and fourth generations of those who rebel against him. So let's count. How many nice things are said about God? Compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So there are seven uh, times that the Lord says, "I I am a gracious God. And he says it in various ways. But then there there are two that are very important who will by no means clear the guilty and who visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. But it's it's not the sort of thing that we like to sing about. As proof of that, I uh, brought up our Baptist hymnal. And uh, this will just take a second, so there's no use in you looking at it right now. You'll have to take my word for it, though that there is not a category anywhere in here for the, the wrath of God or for the justice of God. So I looked in another hymn book, looked in a Presbyterian hymn book that I like very much, the Trinity Hymnal. And uh, you, you people who own Spurgeon's Hymnal, you can look in Spurgeon's Hymnal and see. I can almost promise you that there are, there are several hymns that are devoted to the justice or the wrath of God. In the Presbyterian hymnal that I consulted, uh, there were, I think, six hymns that were devoted to the justice of God, and all of them were adaptations of psalms. 
Which brings up a good point, a couple of good points. The first one is that uh, it's difficult to find a psalm that does not celebrate God's justice. So even the psalms that are predominantly about the goodness of the Lord, among the things that the psalmist finds good and worth celebrating and singing about is the justice of God that he executes against the psalmist's enemies or against the enemies of the Lord's people. The second thing is, the second good point that that brings up is, we need to be singing the psalms. And thank the Lord, we just sang one. Because it would sound like I was rebuking Jim Bob or something if if it hadn't been that way. So we need to be singing the psalms. And if we sing the psalms, then the sort of thing that we encounter today in my text will not seem so shocking and unusual. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. And here we find, among other things, the people of God singing a song that celebrates God's judgment against his enemies. This is one of the scripture memory verses that we have uh, sung. And so, Lord willing, at the conclusion of this uh, sermon, we'll have the opportunity to sing it. Uh, But also, of course, the scripture verse that we sang at the beginning of uh, of this service is also a song that celebrates God's judgment against his enemies. I'm I'm not saying that we should become a people who are constantly singing about and celebrating God's judgment against his enemies. But about seven out of every nine uh, verses of Scripture talk about God's love and grace, but about two out of every nine talk about God's justice and God's wrath. And uh, the, the threat of God's wrath is a worthy deterrent to continuing in sin. I would dare say say that among every converted person in here, one of the factors that caused you to want Jesus as your Savior was the fear that you were going to go to hell. I can certainly say that that was the case with me. And that the fear of going to hell was probably the first motivation that I had to seek the Lord, and uh, then later motivations were added. But even with all that, praise God, I know about the Lord now, and it's all small enough, but with all that I do know after all these years, if I'm honest with you, pretty close to the top of the list of things that I'm happy about is that I'm not going to go to hell. And so there's no, there's no shame in admitting that, and, uh, and there's no shame in recognizing that the fear of God's wrath is a legitimate motivation to do what God tells you to do. Now, already in the book of Revelation, we have had a couple of clusters of seven things. We've had, first of all, a cluster of seven seals that were broken. And I believe that those seven seals represent uh, Jesus' right to open and administer the, the course of the universe. And then there were seven trumpets of warning uh, where I believe that God was saying, my judgment against my people for rejecting my son, my judgment against Israel for killing the prophets is about to come due. But trumpets are not yet the judgment. Trumpets are warnings. 
And so in the trumpets, we have such things as one-third of the sea was turned into blood. One-third of the sun was turned to darkness and so on. But in, in what we're, this cluster of seven that we're getting ready to encounter, not this week, but Lord willing, next week, we'll see that the entire sea is turned to blood. And we'll see that the judgments are far more uh, devastating and inclusive of everything. Trumpets warn, bowls are poured out, and there is no recourse after the bowls are poured out. Now, what we have here in Revelation chapter 15 is the the prelude or the processional of the messengers who are entrusted with the, uh, the task of pouring out God's bowls of wrath upon the land. As I've mentioned several times before, the word that is usually translated earth in the book of Revelation is, in my opinion, more, more accurately translated land because I don't think that the judgments that are pronounced here are worldwide judgments. I think that they are judgments that were poured out on the land of Israel and that most of the book of Revelation uh, was fulfilled in the year 70 AD. <clears throat> so for you visitors or people who are, who are here for the first time, uh, just let me say that there are interpretations of the book of Revelation that see that all of it is future and there are a couple of other interpretations, and then there's one that sees that most of it is in the past. I am I'm one of those people who believes that it has mostly been fulfilled in the past, and uh, I, I think that it has much more relevance for us in the way that we live our lives. That's not the reason I've adopted that position. The reason I've adopted that position is because Jesus describes the things that happen in the book of Revelation, and he says, these things are going to happen within the lifetime of the people who are hearing me right now. And he was speaking that about the year 33 A.D. And so <clears throat> about 37 years later, while many of those people were still alive, then the, the things that Jesus predicted were carried out. And then also in both the first and the last chapter of Revelation, the Bible says these things are going to happen soon and I'm coming quickly. And so since it is bracketed with uh, expectation that it's going to happen soon, that's one of the reasons that I've adopted the position and have been preaching the position these months now that most of it was fulfilled in the first century. In, with that in mind, I've recently adopted the position that I hope will serve me for a long time as I finish up the book of Revelation. How does the message of this chapter, so Roman numeral one, how does the message of this chapter apply to people in the first century? And then Roman numeral two, how does the message of this chapter apply to people living in the 21st century? So let's first of all make our way through the chapter with in mind how did this speak to the people who were hearing it in the late 60s AD just before the destruction of Jerusalem? So let's begin with verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. That is the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on the nation of Israel in fulfillment of the prophecies that Jesus made and the prophecies that are made in this book. This is the conclusion of the plagues that are going to be poured out on the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Notice, of course, that they are plagues, and you don't have to be very much of a Bible scholar for you to, set, for you to answer the question. Now, when you hear the word plagues, what do you think of in the Bible? And, of course, what we think of is 
Israel's being delivered out of Egypt when God sent ten plagues. Well, in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the number ten has some significance, but the number seven has far more significance. We just see sevens repeated again and again, and so it's not surprising that here we have ten, that we have seven plagues instead of ten. But I think that we're still supposed to make the connection, somebody's being delivered out of a bad place. And the people being delivered out of a bad place are those who trust in Jesus Christ. Those who in other places are described as those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And so Christians have become the people of God. What's the bad place that they're being delivered out of? Well, it's not Egypt, but instead it is Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem as standing as the capital of Judaism, which it was in Bible times and it is still today. And so, so very sad that the city of the people of God has become Egypt. It has become Sodom. It has become Babylon, places that the historic people of Israel were delivered out of. And Jerusalem is called all three of those names in the book of Revelation, Egypt, Sodom, and Babylon. And so here here come the angels with the seven plagues, and so some people have been delivered. It's the process of deliverance, and now we see that they are delivered through a sea. Let's look at what it says in verse 2. So we're going to ask uh, several questions that will be answered here. Uh, Where are they? Who are they? And what are they doing? And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, and then there follows the song. So notice where they are. They are standing beside a sea. Now, in the Bible, the sea usually represents the Gentile nations. And uh, so these people are standing beside a sea, and it's a very clear sea. It's a sea of glass, and it's mingled with fire. And so I think the picture is this. Imagine uh, one of those volcanoes that you have recently seen on the news in Hawaii where The molten lava is rolling down the side of the mountain, and then it is going into the ocean. And the ocean around the Hawaiian Islands is just so clear, so inviting, it's like like glass. But here is the molten lava from these volcanoes going into the sea, and I think that at this point it represents judgment. here in in the book of Revelation. It is a sea of glass that is mingled with fire. It's not not a peaceful, calm sea with little flecks of orange going through it. This This is judgment. And it is analogous, I believe, to when God called the waters of the Red Sea back together over the hosts of Pharaoh and they were destroyed in the sea. And you can imagine that there would have been a lot of tumult in the sea as uh, these Egyptians in their armor and their horses and so on are struggling 
and trying to get out of the sea, but as we read, not one of them survived. And so I think that we have these people who are standing beside the sea of glass, mingled with fire. Judgment is taking place against God's enemies. And so the people, who are they? We've seen where they are. Now, who are they? They are the people who have come out of this great tribulation. Not necessarily physically alive. In fact, I think that the implication is pretty strong that these are probably martyrs who have been killed as they stood firmly for Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that the Jews and the Romans were gathered together to persecute them and to kill them unless they conformed to Roman religion and to the Jewish accommodations that were being made to Roman religion. These people refused to, re- they, they refused to submit to the beast. They, did, they had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. And so they are now being rewarded and being vindicated. Even though they may have been killed on earth, now on the other side of the sea, they are standing. And what are they doing? They are singing. They're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now let me come back to the song at, as point number three of this sermon. So point number one of this sermon is that how, how this would apply to the people of that day. And so this would be an encouragement. Don't submit, to, don't submit to the pressures of the world. You will be rewarded. One day you will sing a song of victory on the other side of the judgment that falls on the world. You'll sing a song of victory if you just don't submit to the pressures of the beast, which I take to be Rome, represented by Nero, and its image, which I take to be the Jewish accommodations that the Jewish leaders were making to the Romans. Remember, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, when Jesus was being crucified, said, we have no king but Caesar. This man is not our king. We don't want him to rule over us. And uh, his, his blood be upon us and upon our children. So they rejected Jesus and said, we are going to submit to the, the Roman the Roman restrictions. Caiaphas said, don't you know that if we let it go on like this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And Caiaphas was the high priest that year. It's better that we kill Jesus than that we have the Romans come down and make our lives hard. And so they chose Roman rule over the rule of the Messiah. And so I I take it, uh, as I've explained previously, that the beast is Rome, especially epitomized in Nero, and that the image of the beast is Judaism rejecting Christ and conforming to Roman religion. Now, continuing in this first point, what did it mean to the people in the first century? Let's skip down to verse 5. I'll come back and get verses 3 and 4 later. In verses 5, we see that the judgment of God is coming, and look where it is coming from. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. So the Bible tells us elsewhere that Moses was instructed to make the tabernacle or the tent on earth exactly according to the prescriptions that he was given on the mountain. And the reason given is because this tent on earth was a visual representation of spiritual realities that are in heaven. And so this tent on earth had a main compartment where there was uh, the table of showbread and the candlestick and the altar of incense. And then there was a veil, and on the other side was the sanctuary, 
the Holy of Holies, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, of course, the, the Ark of the Covenant was the place that symbolized God's grace and His mercy towards the people of Israel. But as any Israelite could have told you, if you walk into that area, you're not going to have an exhilarating, happy experience. You're going to be struck dead. Because God in His grace and His mercy is also a God of justice and holiness. And He has specified, nobody's allowed to come in here here except the high priest once a year. So from the mercy seat, from the Ark of the Covenant, there is mercy for those who receive the Lord, but there is judgment for those who presume against the Lord. And so Israel has persistently presumed against the Lord, and now judgment is going to come out of that place that ought to be mercy, ideally, but now it comes out, and here come the plagues. Out of the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues. They're clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. That is the kind of dress that someone who was ministering as a priest would have. And uh, so they come out, and they uh, remember a priest is someone who uh, acts between God and between men. And so here come these angels, and, and uh, a priest uh, ideally functions as someone who recommends us to God, but sometimes it's, uh, it's necessary for the priest to uh, administer the wrath of God. A priest would do this when he offered sacrifices that represented God's anger against sin. Well, now here they come, and these representatives of God's uh, holiness and representative of God's justice are carrying seven bowls. Uh, King James Version says vials. The word vial has come to mean something like something like you would imagine in a chemistry set. And uh, but we think bowls. Earlier we read that whoever receives whoever receives the mark of the beast and worships its image, he also must drink the wine of the fury of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And we think of that as something like a chalice. And so there are some interpreters who say. Well, he's bringing out these chalices, these, you might think of uh, a fancy wine glass only made of metal. He's bringing these out because now his enemies have to drink the fury of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength. I think that bowls is, is the better translation. And I come to this not because I'm a Greek scholar, but because I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey. And when in ancient times they would mix... Uh, wine, they would usually mix it in a bowl. There was a mixing bowl. And so in, when Homer writes about uh, someone being served in the Iliad or the Odyssey, they would talk about the wine being mixed, and it was part of the ritual of showing hospitality. But this is the wine of God's wrath, and it's poured full strength into the bowl of his anger, and now these bowls are going to be poured out on his enemies. Notice verse 7, an important, uh, an important verse. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The four living creatures, uh, it's been several months since we have examined what they are, 
I think that they are representative creatures. The first living creature had the face of a lion. The second living creature had the face of an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature had the face of an eagle in flight. And so I think that, uh, and in the book of Ezekiel, we read that uh, there were uh, these seraphim who had all four faces. One, one body, six wings, but all four faces. I think that they represent uh, the ferocity of God, face like a lion. They represent the strength of God, face like an ox. They represent the intelligence of God, face like a man. They represent the swiftness of God, like an eagle in flight. I, I, I think that there are living creatures there that we would call seraphim and cherubim, and that they, uh, if they have physical bodies, when they appear to us, that we see them as these fantastic beasts. But they represent uh, the, I think in this place, they represent the approval of heaven, the approval of all of heaven on what is going on. Now, I think that this is an important verse because it sometimes troubles us when we think about going to heaven and someone that we love is in hell. And we ask ourselves, How could I possibly be happy in heaven if I know that someone that I love is in hell? I think that this verse teaches us that when we get to heaven, we will share the perspective of heaven. And that we will see that God's justice is perfectly just and that it was beautifully and exactly done. Here we see through a glass darkly. Then we will see... Uh, clearly. Uh, here, here we don't understand everything. The Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. But I think that when we go to heaven, we're not going to know everything that God knows, but we're going to have his perspective on things, and we will not see his damnation or his judgment against sinners at all to be unbearable. And uh, So I think that this verse represents that. Here is one of the four living creatures who is giving the seven bowls of God's wrath to the seven messengers, knowing full well he's going to pour them out on the earth. And uh, so I think that what we have seen in verses 5, 6, and 7 show us the, the justice and the righteousness of God's judgment against sinners And what we see in verse 8 is the irrevocable nature of God's judgment against Israel. Irrevocable meaning that it's not going to be taken back. Verse 8 says, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So no one can go into the sanctuary and say, Lord, please stay your hand of wrath. Please have mercy upon Israel. No, at this point, God's judgment against Israel is is final. It's sure. It's irrevocable. That is, it is not going to be revoked. God's judgment is, is going to be poured out upon the nation of Israel. Now, let me move into how does this apply to people in the first century? And there's really some bleed over from the last thing that I said. It leads over to the question, can people who are Jews be saved today? And the answer is, of course. The answer is yes. Romans chapter 11 describes this as 
The people of God are something like an olive tree, a tame olive tree. And God is someone who has the skill of grafting. Grafting is the process of taking a twig or a branch from another olive tree or a fruit tree and grafting it into. So you can, you can take a twig from a golden delicious apple tree and you can graft it onto a red delicious stock. And when that branch grows, it'll have red delicious apples on some branches, but that branch will have golden delicious apples on it. You can, you can have four or five varieties of apples growing from the same stock. It may be a red, a red delicious stock, but you've got Jonathan's and Honeycrisp's and Golden Delicious and so on growing from that. Well, God knows how to graft things. And Romans chapter 11 tells us that he has broken off some branches out of the olive tree that is the promises made to Abraham and to his followers. And he's broken some Israelites off and he's grafted some Gentiles in. It's like he's taken some branches from a wild olive tree and grafted them in. And then he makes this application in Romans 11. Therefore, consider the the goodness and the severity of God. Goodness and severity. Severity to those who were broken off, but goodness to you who have been grafted in, if you continue in his goodness. If you don't continue in his goodness, then he can break you off too, and naturally he could graft Israel in again as being part of the natural olive tree. And so I think that the picture there is, yes, any, any Israelite, anyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham, anyone who is a Jew, can be saved if he will embrace the Messiah, if he will embrace Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Uh, But the message for us 21st century Christians is don't get presumptuous and think, well, it's all okay, I, I can just coast. No, our life in the Christian life is to be an ongoing exertion of effort. Uh, to, to be conformed to the will of God and to the character that the Lord has set out for us. And so remembering the, the justice and the severity of God tells us that God is able to punish his enemies. That's the first lesson to 21st century Christians. And the second is that he is able to vindicate and reward his servants. He is able to take care of you. If you, if you have to endure hardship on earth because you have been faithful to Jesus Christ, even if it means that you die, God will vindicate you and God will reward you. In addition to your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you've also got to believe in his ability to reward you in the hereafter. Otherwise, you'll always be at the mercy of people who can threaten you with harm or with death. But if you get over, if we get over our fear of death, then, then we are in a, in a position to be brave. You cannot take away from me what is most precious. I, I have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so those are two very simple lessons for those of us who live in the 21st century. Now let's go back to the songs. So it says in in verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, I told you 
that there are three texts of Scripture that are in competition for being the Song of Moses. I think that we can rule out uh, Psalm 90, uh, but Psalm 5, I mean, but uh, Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 30 are in competition for which one it is. I had the intention of reading to you all of Deuteronomy chapter 30, the, the song, but my time is almost up, and so I'm not going to do that. It would probably take me six or seven minutes to read it all. But I'll just summarize for you what it says. It says in, in Deuteronomy 30, if I said Psalm 30, I meant Deuteronomy, and it could be 32. So Deuteronomy 30 or 32, it's, it's the song of Moses that the Lord told him to teach to Israel, and most of it is threats about what God would do to Israel if they didn't remain faithful to him. Most of it is threats. And so this would be an appropriate song for the redeemed to sing as they are contemplating God's wrath being poured out on Israel in fulfillment of the prophecies that are made there in Deuteronomy 30 or 32. I can't remember which one it is. But now let's look at this song, which I think that we might say this is the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Now let's just pause there and uh, say that as the wrath of God is being contemplated by these who have been delivered from the wrath of God and are watching this convulsive sea that is a sea of glass that is mingled with fire that represents God's judgment against His people. Uh, and He's using the Gentile nations to do it, and it's, but it's mingled with the wrath of God. So as, as the redeemed are contemplating this, they infer some things about God's character. I think, that the, I think that the words infer and deduce are virtual synonyms in everyday parlance. But I think in, I think in technical philosophical language, an inference is when you look at the evidence, you look at the effects, and you surmise what is the cause. And a deduction is when you look at the evidence and you predict what will be the result. So that's the way that I'm using inference and deduction. You know, if I'd gone into a Van, Wink, a Rip Van Winkle sleep and had awakened this morning on the way to church, and I'd seen the, the leaves, I'd felt the temperature, I saw the brown grass, then I would have inferred that autumn equinox had already occurred. I would, I would have inferred that we are past September 22nd. But that's looking at the evidence and saying, what has caused this? At the same time, I could use the same evidence, the, the leaves, the, the brown grass, the cool temperature, and say, winter is coming. That's a deduction. That's something that I draw from the evidence. I think that we have both an inference and a deduction here. The inference is that all of this, all of this wrath has come from God who is the Almighty, God 
who alone has the kind of power to wreak this sort of devastation, and that he is holy and just in doing it. So there are these inferences. But then there's also the deduction that God through this is doing something that is going to be a drastic change in the way things have been done. I'm going to predict, the song says, that all nations are going to come and worship you. Not just one nation, but all nations are going to come and worship you. And that's the way this song concludes there in verse 4. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And of course, they were right in that inference, because here we are, a bunch of white-skinned people, mostly from Europe, who are worshiping God. Uh, And I don't know how many nations are represented here. If there is a Jew present, I thank God for your presence but I'm not aware that there are any Jews here. And probably in most congregations throughout Kentucky, there are very few Jews. But there are people from Europe and Asia and Africa, from all nations, who are coming and worshiping the Lord. And so uh, this song, the Song of the Lamb, is a song that doesn't emphasize the sacrificial work of the Lamb in redeeming a people, but it celebrates the judgment of the Lamb against those who rejected him, those who had killed the prophets, and his intention to save people from every nation. We're going to conclude this morning with uh, singing this song, which we have learned before. So let's stand and we'll sing Great and Amazing. <laughs>